Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 4th, 2012, and my guest is Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. He's the director of the Earth Institute, and his latest book is The Price of Civilization. Jeff, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thanks so much. Great to be with you. Our topic for today is the U.S. economy. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of other areas as well. You argue that we face chronic problems, but our solutions that we've been trying are very temporary. What are the chronic problems that you think face the United States, and what should we be doing about them? Really, since the uh, early 1980s, uh, we've seen a pretty significant structural change in the U.S. economy, uh, and it's been manifested in changing labor markets, changing patterns of production, changing patterns of trade, changing patterns of finance, and a lot of uh, ecological uh, harms uh, and, and disasters. And I think that when you sum all of that up, uh, one can see that the U.S., like the whole world indeed, uh, is experiencing uh, a lot of uh, disruption, uh, a lot of uh, uh, very uh, difficult uh, changes in uh, all aspects of our economic and, and social life. And we've got a lot of undesirable consequences from that. My point is we've not been attending to those long-term changes. We have hardly recognized them in our politics or our policies. And as a result of that, we've ended up in recent years uh, in a pretty deep macroeconomic crisis, high joblessness, uh, a pretty deep social crisis uh, with the very high inequality of income and a shockingly uh, high uh, amount of poverty in the United States. We've ended up with uh, dysfunctional uh, systems uh, in our economy. The healthcare system uh, is really, uh, compared to most other places in the world, uh, not working. Our energy sector, our infrastructure, really are way off course from what we need. So my view is that by failing to understand the the deeper dynamics that the world, the U.S., uh, are experiencing, the deeper trends of technology and globalization and environmental change, we've just gotten farther and farther off track, and our political system uh, seems only to understand the 24-hour news cycle or, at best, the two-year election cycle. It doesn't seem to want to focus on these longer-term issues at all. Uh, we only have an hour. <laughs> so uh, that that list of, of problems that we have was was quite lengthy. So let's just take a few of them. Uh, what do you think are the most important ones that have been ignored uh, that, that you think uh, are at least amenable to policy? I think the overriding change of the, the last 30 years has been globalization. Uh, but globalization has many different aspects to it. Uh, of course, the world has really come together into one integrated, interconnected system of production, trade, finance, and technology. The introduction of China into the world economy has been probably the single most transformative uh, aspect. But globalization has both enabled and been enabled by uh, the information revolution. And so that has allowed jobs to a shift uh, uh, in across sectors and across uh, type and across countries. Uh, we have a radically uh, changed division of labor within and uh, between economies. The growth of the world economy as a whole that's been made possible by this and by the change of policies has also put huge strains uh, not only on particular sectors of the economy and on income distribution, but on the global environment because China is so large 
and the rise of the emerging economies is so rapid and so significant that we also have planetary scale ecological challenges as well. So I, I would, in, in a way, try to maybe a little bit oversimplify it by saying that a fundamental driver is a world economy that at one level is, has done quite well over 30 years, quite significant economic growth. But the integration of the world economy has meant huge changes in the nature of uh, jobs, technology, and uh, environmental problems. And again, those are the ones that we need to attend to. What we've ended up with is an, an economy that no longer sustains a, a middle class, that has huge inequalities between rich and poor, uh, and that hasn't uh, begun to face up to some very, very deep ecological challenges, which hit us the hard way in, in these super storms like Superstorm Sandy uh, last November, or the massive drought that has been hitting the United States uh, in the recent years and doing a great damage to the U.S. food supply and and uh, and the and the global food supply. Well, let's so, let, let's stop. I want to stop you there because uh, I want to sure. take. I want to get back to the economy, but you've emphasized a couple of times the ecological issue, and I want to I want to get to that on the food issue. It it, it seems to me, and I'm happy to hear a different perspective, that uh, the subsidies to the agricultural sector in the United States, uh, particularly the uh, increased encouragement of of corn and the production of ethanol, has pushed up uh, price. Prices of many related commodities. That's one side of the commodity price issue. The other side, of course, is the demand side from growth from China and India and elsewhere, which has pushed up prices of, of oil alongside geopolitical events. So it's very hard to disentangle those. But it seems to me that we don't have any kind of food crisis in the United States other than the fact that we have privileged one product uh, in such a distortionary way with very little environmental return. Do you disagree with that? Well, no, I, with, I agree with the with with both your points. The the ethanol subsidies are are absolutely crazy, except from the political economy point of view. The rising world demand for feed grains uh, and food grains, especially because of China's growth, is is a major factor. But on the supply side, globally and in the U.S., we've uh, had an increasingly erratic uh, supply of both the feed and the food grains, not only the diversion uh, into uh, biofuels, which make no sense, as, as you rightly point out, but also more and more shocks. Last year, because of this mega drought, we lost something around a fifth of uh, the soybean production, something comparable uh, in our maize production. We're a central part of uh, the total world uh, food and feed grain system. And so that was a, a major shock. In recent years, uh, there have been significant droughts in China, uh, which uh, did a great damage to their domestic production, forced them uh, big time into the international markets. Uh, there were significant crop failures in Russia and Ukraine. And so what we're seeing is a uh, three phenomena, and I think you named two of them very well. You know, one is a useless diversion of very valuable arable land into, into the wrong things, both in the U.S. and Europe, largely driven by lobbies. Second is a rising world demand for uh, every variety of uh, agricultural and I would add fisheries uh, outputs. But third is an ecological constraint uh, on the supply side, on the fishery side, uh, we've really uh, topped out uh, the extraction from the oceans and done great damage to a lot of fisheries. On the terrestrial side, we have a tremendous instability of the feed and food grain supplies right now in a lot of the staple regions because of uh, this phenomenon of increasing uh, variability, uh, big heat waves, uh, droughts, uh, floods in, in a lot of places, uh, Australia, uh, being uh, increasingly uh, destabilized as well. 
And so I think it's a, a combination of all of these factors, um, but they're, they're all significant and they're all playing a role. And the manifestation of it most uh, directly is very high real prices of these commodities and, of course, high volatility as well. But I think both the, the mean and the, the, uh, the variance, uh, the high uh, average prices that we now face and this very high volatility in recent years are um, reflections of, of these phenomena. Yeah, the only other point I would make, and um, obviously we could spend the whole time on this, is that uh, I'm not a, a, um, a deep student of climate change, but I have noticed that there is murmuring about the last 10 or 15 years have not shown much uh, global warming. And this seems surprising in light of incredible amount of carbon dioxide that's being pumped out of, of China uh, and uh, and elsewhere as the world has gotten more more developed. Uh, oh, I think that's a, not a, not a right uh, observation, Russ. What, which part? What people, the, the fact uh, that uh, the the last uh, ten years uh, have not been consistent with uh, the modeling and with the expectations of climate change. There, there's a, a lot of uh, silliness in that oft-repeated observation. The last decade has been the warmest decade in instrument history. What is true is that uh, 1998 was exceptionally warm because it was a very strong El Nino year. So a lot of uh, people that play up this, uh, mainly for propaganda reasons, in my view, uh, say, well, look, 1998 was the peak. And then if you draw the line from 1998, you know, you just don't see all that much. Uh, but what we do see is that if you strip away this uh, seasonal and interannual uh, phenomenon of uh, the ENSO cycle, the El Nino Southern Oscillation cycle. If you take into account uh, the uh, decadal uh, ocean uh, temperature uh, trends and so forth, it, what we face right now is very, very clear. Uh, and that is a, a greenhouse gas driven warming of the planet that is both uh, highly significant very dangerous, continuing uh, at a rapid rate, and by th the best of our uh, ability of uh, scientific inference, uh, very frightening into the future uh, with think, a lot of instability likely to arise. Uh, do you think we have any precision about what the average global temperature will be in, say, 50 years? I think we have uh, enough reason to believe that the increases will be so significant and we're running an experiment uh, not on a small patch of the planet but on the only earth we have uh, that we have all the reason to take uh, strong measures now uh, to uh, that are in conformity with the the very strong knowledge and inferences that we have available okay well maybe we'll come back to that toward the end i would rather focus our time though on the economy because i think but it is part of the economy, but oh, let's, let's move on to other issues. <laughs> well, I, want, I want to come to the to the issues you raised uh, about the U.S. Um, and the U.S. workforce and the and its relationship to the global global economy. I want to I want to challenge you and and have you expand on a couple of those statements you made earlier. Um, you said the middle class. I forget the exact phrase you used. Um, it was not a cheerful phrase. Is dead, gone, dying, missing? Something, something. Drinking. Uh, you I don't know what word I use, but uh, let's let's go with shrinking for our shrinking. discussion. Moment. What what do you mean by that? I I don't know what that means. I, you know, when I look at the economy, and the reason I find your your work so interesting is that it's very difficult to disentangle the mediocre recovery we're in now from longer term trends. And there is a temptation to say, well, we're just having a bad recovery. You're saying, no, no, no. There's something more serious underlying uh, this problem. There, there's a sea change uh, that's that's more than just the last couple of years, suggesting it goes back two to three decades. Um, what's that sea change that's that's destroying the middle class? Because I don't see it. I see I see a sea well, change I, yeah. for people who have say didn't finish high school. I think a person who didn't finish high school today has a very deep, different economic path than 50 years ago, or 40 years ago, or even 30 years ago. But that's a very specific kind of problem. You're saying something much more systemic. Well, uh, first, uh, a person who finishes high school but doesn't get a bachelor's degree is uh, is is the median. 
uh, for a, a, a young uh, man in our society. So we should keep track of uh, what is, uh, you know, what's a small thing and, and, and what's a modal uh, phenomenon uh, for young people aged 25 to 29 uh, Bachelor's uh, degree holders uh, constitute uh, about a third of the total. I think it's maybe 35, 36%. Uh, that share has uh, not really changed very much for quite a long time. Most uh, of our young people do not get a bachelor's degree. They yet. attend. More, more attend, but they don't finish or something. More attend, uh, and many, many drop out uh, before they complete the degree. And the, the labor market uh, experience is that the degree is important. Yeah. Uh, the premium on that degree has increased significantly. If you do have a, a bachelor's degree or above, you're probably doing pretty well in this economy. But that is uh, not uh, the median, uh, and it, it's uh, far from uh, the norm in our society. Uh, if you have a high school diploma or less, um, well, life is tough, uh, and in uh, many measures, uh, it's gotten uh, considerably tougher. Every measure that one could cite uh, has its own uh, school of uh, debate of exactly what it means and compositional effects and other things to take away. But I would say that the highlights are that for uh, men in particular, uh, and I think there's a reason for that because uh, men are have been more exposed to the forces of globalization than women in the economy, uh, who are mainly in the service sector and uh, most more often than not in non-tradable sectors. But for men, uh, the peak, uh, median, uh, full-time uh, annual earning uh, was in 1973. And one has to uh, uh, acknowledge that by any standard uh, of our business, uh, if you look at that, because our economy has been growing since 1973, pretty significantly and pretty consistently, actually, um, to see a uh, median earnings of full-time male workers peak 40 years ago is a structural uh, shock, actually. I, I find it amazing, uh, very counterintuitive and, and very striking. Uh, but that is, that, that's the case. Uh, and if you look at many other measures, every one of them flawed, so you have to take the aggregation of them to, to get a picture, whether it's wage levels or uh, levels uh, in, in, of uh, earnings uh, in various occupations. Uh, basically, for the middle of the income distribution and on down, uh, there's been very little measured progress. I think probably real progress is greater than what's measured, but uh, all of the measured gains uh, are in the, the top quintile, more or less, and a huge proportion of those are in the top 1% we know. Um, so we've had a tremendous uh, widening of income inequalities by, by many, many measures. Uh, top 1%, uh, Gini coefficients, uh, a top 10% uh, over bottom 10%, top 20% over bottom 20%. We've seen a lot of evidence of stagnation of earnings for uh, those with high school or, or less uh, uh, educational completion. Uh, we see that uh, the number of jobs uh, in uh, the current recovery, for example, for those with high school and, and less, there's been no recovery. There's just been a net job loss that uh, had no, uh, no rebound. Uh, the jobs for uh, college grads uh, has continued to grow, uh, and there, there was a rebound uh, that, that was quite significant. So I think this widening of the income inequality uh, is very real. Sometimes uh, the middle class is measured uh, by uh, the, the proportion of uh, households or workers uh, within uh, some range of the median, uh, plus minus 50% uh, of the median income, for example. And the share of households within that bound has uh, also declined pretty markedly. But those numbers are very distorted. 
by demographic changes in due to divorce, as the number of households has changed dramatically over the last 30 or 40 years, household structure has totally been revolutionized uh, because of that increase in divorce rate, the delay in, in the age of marriage. So I think when you look at those data, you have to be you have to be very careful. I, I want to go back to your. Didn't, didn't I say that? Uh, not exactly. <laughs> well, I, I did, and 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 I I not only I said that uh, every one of these uh, well, has their, uh, yeah. their their community that that debates uh, the fine points, but I also said you have to look at the totality uh, of this evidence, which comes in many many different directions and from many different kinds of surveys and many different kinds of evidence. And I think in my conclusion, at least, is that the evidence is strong and consistent, uh, that we've had a significant structural change, a widening of income inequality, uh, a a very particular effect at the top, uh, and a quite significant effect from the median on down. Well, the question then is, first of all, I I don't think the the 1973 peak of male earnings is consistent with, as you point out, there there is some growth. Maybe it's not zero. Maybe that really wasn't the peak. I, I think it's grossly out of line with what we see through all kinds of consumption measures and other other ways we could look at it. The way that I think the data are collected. But Except for us, I would just add the following: Look, by by the way we actually measure uh, consumption in the national accounts and by the traditional. CPI, uh, Consumer Price Index, uh, deflated standards. Uh, there you you see a peak. What I don't think is is right are these consumer price indices. You know, I, I think the quality of goods, the advances of technology, the fact that uh, people can we can do things uh, now that uh, weren't uh, literally were not possible forty years ago. Don't get into our quality of uh, of uh, goods measurements adequately. So I think there's been progress, but as we actually measure things, no, then it, then it really did peak. Oh, um, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. So, so that, that's my point. I think the question then is, uh, it's true that the top 1% has done very well. Do you believe there is a causal connection between, say, the top 1% success, which has many different components, as we've often remarked on this program, it includes... Wall Street executives who I think have been grotesquely uh, subsidized by taxpayer uh, largesse in all kinds of subtle and not so subtle ways. There's athletes, entertainers, uh, CEOs of large companies, executives in large companies that have been very successful and productive, entrepreneurs. That a lot of those people have made the world a better place, and I'm thrilled that they're making a lot more money. It doesn't bother me at all. But there are others I, I think have taken money from the rest of us. But do you think that that change in the top 1% has something to do with the fate of those in the middle and below. And I ask that because although we talk about how hard it is to disentangle trends from uh, temporary changes, when you look at this last recession, we see a massive drop in construction employment, which punishes uh, people with le- relatively low levels of education. We saw we see a, a, a very tough secular trend downward in manufacturing employment due to globalization and productivity change. Uh, those, to me, are the things that matter. Do you think the inequality in and of itself is doing something to the middle and the, and the lower end of the distribution? Well, I, I think that uh, you're right to uh, point to globalization and technological change as the, as the main drivers uh, of, actually, I would say, of most of this um, even at the top, uh, and I regard those as very significant uh, structural factors that that we've not been paying attention to. That that's really uh, my point. So I'm I'm in agreement with that. Um, when it comes to the top, they've been uh, big gainers uh, in globalization, but for actually a, a very interesting variety of reasons. One is that globalization really has been kind to, to capital in general, whether it's a human capital or financial capital, more outlets for investment, a, a larger global market, uh, having high skills or a, a, a great brand or um, a, a, a great ability to sing or put a, put a ball in a, in a hoop or uh, in a cup has uh, absolutely been aided by globalization. 
but so too uh, has the political power of uh, the the top uh, absolutely been enhanced by this as well. They can play governments off against each other. There is a, a race to the bottom in many ways uh, of uh, who you uh, try to attract, who you appeal to in internationally mobile capital. Uh, our own political system uh, is skewed more and more to the interests, the views, uh, the well-being of of that group, and that has uh, absolutely uh, been played out in the way our tax system has evolved in uh, the absolutely grotesque uh, and fulminant tax abuses uh, that uh, have been permitted, and in the fact that Wall Street has run the White House for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and ended up, uh, as Wall Street does when it's allowed to run things, uh, making a, a huge mess of things. So I think that there's a, a political economy aspect to the wealth uh, at the top that goes alongside the uh, economic aspects. The economic aspects are that globalization really does favor mobile capital. It really does favor human capital. Uh, it, it has been... Uh, very tough uh, for uh, those in the middle and at the bottom uh, because of globalization uh, and, and the competition uh, in the open sector of our economy. Uh, and of course, as uh, you and I both said, technology has been an underlying driver of globalization itself and it also a direct, uh, a, a direct part of the income distribution shifts within the U.S., even aside from globalization. So I, I, the, the, the summary is I view it as a pretty complicated uh, morass of um, basic economic factors combined with political economy, uh, but it's added up to uh, a political system which amplifies these differences rather than uh, ra rather than uh, leans against the wind. On a cheerier note, you say it's bad for people at the bottom, but of course you've been here, I assume you've been here in the United States. Certainly the average worker in China, India, and a few other places, they all have a lot of people, uh, have done extraordinarily well over the last 30 years. I agree with that. And I, w I would add Brazil as a, yeah. another large economy with uh, with big gains. You know, the world economy has done quite well in a, in a lot of ways, and I'm a big fan of globalization. Uh, I think it has raised living standards and improved well-being. What I'm not a fan of is closing our eyes to the challenges that, that it leads to as well, and that, that's really my main, uh, my main point. Before we leave that, and I want to turn to some more uh, macroeconomic policy issues. Before we leave that, though, I want to go back to this example of these sectoral changes in, in manufacturing and housing construction. When people say uh, it used to be that if you if you finished high school, you led a middle class life and that's no longer true. I think that's correct. Uh, but I, my response to that is, well, it used to be in the late 19th century. If you were a blacksmith, you made a good living. And by the early 20th century, that's was no longer true certainly the middle of the 20th century. And we, we people understood that. And they, they had to go get, get different skills. And it, it's certainly true that the manufacturing sector in the United States used to be a, a very good outlet for people with low levels of formal schooling. It, that's a sector that's diminishing. Uh, housing has at least declined temporarily, maybe for a long time. What policy changes uh, need to be put in place or have to be put in place, if at all, to let the evolution of the job market deal with these technological changes? What do you recommend? Well, I think it, it's, you're making a, a great point, and I agree with it. When you have uh, underlying structural changes, as we do, you expect, uh, you, you expect changes in response, and then you really have to ask the question, uh, will these take care of themselves? And... I think the complication fundamentally comes from the fact that the entire life cycle of human capital uh, from uh, an early childhood, which uh, gives a chance to a young child up through uh, formal schooling, uh, up through uh, the uh, costs of uh, higher education, have 
massive uh, breakdowns, uh, and these are breakdowns that have been acknowledged for for decades and decades. I think Milton Friedman was probably as eloquent as anybody uh, about uh, the the breakdowns of normal market forces for human capital. What I see happening, Russ, is that we have increasingly become a tracked society where a child born into poverty today has a very, very difficult, uh, very, very difficult uh, mountain to climb if they're going to get out of poverty. And the evidence is that most don't make it. Um, and there are many factors in that, both uh, uh, within family uh, transmission of uh, human capital, uh, our absolutely insane policy of locking up uh, a whole generation of uh, young uh, minority men, um, which has led to this incarceration boom, which is uh, breaking our society, uh, in, in, uh, especially in African-American communities. Um, the uh, great uh, problems of, uh, of broken schools, uh, gangs, neighborhoods uh, that, that don't function, um, kids that by the age of four or five are not school ready and never catch up. Uh, Jim Heckman's uh, evidence on that is extremely powerful in my view. Uh, and then uh, the soaring costs of higher education, which uh, maybe we're going to see a technological breakthrough uh, to get out of with online education. I dearly hope for that. But what we see is a very large cohort of young people responding to the market, trying to get ahead and uh, falling short. Uh, they go to college for a year or two, take on a lot of debt, uh, and uh, then can't, can't make it. Uh, and so now we've got a trillion dollars of uh, student loans. A huge amount of that is uh, going to go into default. Uh, it's going to be uh, very painful for a lot of young people who uh, made a year or two of school but couldn't continue. And we haven't solved this whole uh, life cycle problem of human capital. It used to be easier. Uh, of course, uh, it used to be you weren't aspiring to uh, a $50,000 or $100,000 a year job. You were aspiring uh, to be a trained blacksmith, like you said. And that was an easier road to hoe. But now we have very profound challenges of uh, human capital accumulation because we want to live uh, in a sophisticated, high-income society that requires lots of skills and a healthy upbringing and, uh, and uh, uh, labor market-friendly uh, capacities. And for a significant part of our population, of our young people, it's not happening. And I see that as a huge probably the biggest uh, uh, investment failure uh, of our time and uh, also as, as a, as a social calamity. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, um, it's an infrastructure failure that we can, we can both agree on with, um, with both how tragic it is and how difficult it seems to, to be to do anything about it. I, I, I wish we talked about it more in a substantive, honest evidence-based way than we do. And I wish we took the fact that because of technology and, and uh, globalization, we've had a problem uh, that's been growing for a long time uh, that we would actually face up to this. And it's interesting, you know, I, I take a view on one piece of what you said, maybe it's a good segue to the macro, um, that is a little bit different from others. We had a uh, we had our housing bubble uh, and collapse, and the housing bubble provided uh, jobs, uh, not huge numbers, but a couple million jobs in Millions. construction that went away. Uh, and uh, I view that not as a business cycle, but as the last hurrah of uh, trying to do anything to employ people who otherwise weren't going to get employed through easy credit policy. So I view the, the, the boom in the housing market basically as the Fed's fairly pathetic response to this deeper structural problem. In other words, we've had a weak labor market for quite a while, and the only way we've been able to 
uh, address it is by pumping in a lot of money uh, into housing. And of course, that leads to a bubble and it, it leads to a collapse and it's a very short-sighted policy. But the Fed, which is a very short-sighted institution, uh, has simply looked at the labor market, said it's weak, and therefore it's our mandate to lower interest rates, uh, put the pedal to the floor, uh, pump up liquidity. And so we get these housing bubbles, not because of uh, mere accidents or you know deranged uh, regulation, though that's part of it. We get them in part as a macro response, a policy response to this underlying structural challenge, which we didn't want to discuss. Uh, and so the only way we end up discussing it is, is through uh, monetary policy. Let's, let's stick with this education issue for another minute, though, because I think it, it is important and it, it, it's nice. Let's have a few minutes of substance on it. Uh, I would just add that the technological revolution in education, which I hope is coming, is going to create, I hope, uh, a lot of inequality in the uh, in our profession. Uh, there are going to be some very successful people who can master that technology, reach a much larger group of people, make a lot more money. And there are going to be a lot of academics who are going to have trouble making a living, which probably is for the best thing. We'll have to, those of us who can't uh, reach large audiences will have to find something more productive to do. Well, we're, we're going to be like uh, the music industry yeah, very soon. Exactly. It's exactly what's happened there as well. Uh, a, a few bands make it and uh, lots of others have their music heard, but uh, they don't, they don't earn much of an income. And, and it's, but for people who love music or who are intellectually curious, it's a great time to be alive. So uh, I, I, <laughs> I think that's right. And I think for education, we'll, we can have a boom of access, but it is going to be pretty disruptive. So let, let's talk though for a minute about that education issue uh, with the world we're in now uh, before there are these changes we hope are coming. It's the world we're stuck with at least for some time especially at the K through 12 level. Um, you know, I live in a suburban uh, Maryland town with phenomenal public schools. There, there's a bunch of them out here, uh, Bethesda, Potomac. Um, schools are great. Public schools are great here. Uh, you go into the city, they're awful. Um, we, and you asked for an evidence-based discussion of this issue. It's hard to do because we have family issues. We have cultural issues. We have teacher quality issues very hard to disentangle. And we have a system that's unbelievably inflexible on every dimension. Uh, you know, it's still 25 kids, 40 kids, 18 kids sitting at desks doing stuff in, with a teacher in the front of the room. Uh, we don't have an apprentice system. We don't have a technical training system. We have a fantasy that, that oh, if everybody could just learn science and math and engineering and technology, we, we, we just, we'd all be rich. But not everybody can do those things. So how do you – my preference, of course, is to get the government out of the business of educating people and let the private sector and voluntary activity do a better – I think we do a better job. But I, th I doubt you share that view. So what would be your recommendation for how we evolve or at least move forward from – given these challenges? I think uh, the first thing I would like us to do is to look at some of the international experience more closely because I think there are a lot of very interesting lessons of success stories that we could benefit from. Uh, I'll mention two. Uh, one is Germany, of course, which is now rightly famous for standing out, not quite alone, but uh, as part of a, a Northern European distinctiveness of low youth unemployment. Uh, and they have a tradition that goes back actually to the Guild Age, of course, uh, of apprenticeships, but they've thought very hard about the school-to-work transition, uh, starting from what should schools do, what kind of skills are needed, uh, what is a true vocational skill track for skilled craftsmen, which is, is still a very much a German tradition. And then uh, they have uh, public subsidies to enable uh, companies to take on uh, very raw uh, early um, apprentices, uh, and many of those apprenticeships, uh, which are part of a formal program, then turn into long-term jobs within that company itself, and others just have given the ground-level experience to uh, young people to understand what the labor market is. So to, to my mind, that kind of uh, active labor market policy is smart, it's complicated, uh, and it's not what we have. 
Uh, we have a, a kind of an industrial machine, which probably worked in the industrial age, where you uh, churn out kids to 10th grade or 12th grade, and, and uh, then there was a market for them. Yeah. And that's not working now. The second, uh, I think, uh, is very important, is, is Finland. Uh, and a, a wonderful book that I recommend is called Finnish Lessons, uh, about uh, Finland's kind of self-realization that they were at the top of the world's charts on uh, these PISA, uh, International Comparative uh, Standards Tests. And uh, they don't even test there. So uh, they you know, went into their own uh, internal analysis. What did we do uh, to uh, get to the top of these standardized results when we don't even have a culture of testing? Uh, and th the point there, which is almost at the other end of the extreme here, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but I think it is at the core uh, is that Finland, as a homogeneous society with a tradition of uh, social, socioeconomic, ethnic, and religious homogeneity, has an incredibly strong ethic of equality. And the view as uh, this educator, who was one of the lead uh, education reformers in, in uh, Finland, writes in this book, Finnish Lessons, is that the starting point was the idea that every kid in Finland needs a decent start and a decent education. They kind of worked backwards from that uh, fundamental premise into the design of, uh, of their schools, their school systems. They're strongly unionized, by the way, uh, but uh, the teachers are held in extremely high social repute. Uh, they're the esteemed members of the society. But there was a, a real norm of equality. Now, the United States has absolutely no such norm, uh, and um, we, we've ran away from it, uh, especially over the last 40 years. We have the most uh, tracked uh, differences, how rich kids uh, want their kids to be educated, and, how, uh, and that's largely in private schools, uh, and how uh, average uh, families uh, in the middle have their kids educated are just completely different things. Uh, and so we, we see that difference, but there's a huge resource difference uh, involved. And I think it's really worth looking at uh, how do kids uh, of the top 1%, um, what kind of schools do they go to? How much does it cost to educate them and so forth? What happens uh, for the rest of society is, is completely different. But then I think there are obviously these very deep uh, social realities in our country, but they're not just fate. They are partly our public response. Uh, the the African-American community has been devastated, in my view, by the way we have engaged in the so-called war on crime from uh, the late 1960s onward. We've had an epidemic of incarceration unmatched in the entire world and now we're into the second and the third generation of kids growing up without fathers uh, and with two and a half million uh, young people uh, behind, uh, behind bars. It's, it's mind-bogglingly wrong-headed. Uh, and it's, it's a big part of the problem, actually, that isn't discussed. Yeah, we and do. and it's, it's, also, uh, it's also fueled by the worst incentives imaginable. We have privatized the prisons. And the prisons actually lobby for customers, uh, the customers that the state, uh, the state system gives them. Uh, and they're perfectly aware of what great business it is to lock up a kid because uh, he's uh, uh, you know, been caught with a, a joint um, and to keep him behind bars for years. That's business. And so every time we privatize something, we also create a lobby around it. That's part of the political economy. And we ought to think about that side of the, of the problem as well. We did a podcast with Becky Pettit on that, on many of those issues, uh, which we'll put a link up to. Uh, I, I do think it's more than that. I, I do think it's, um, I agree, there's, a, there's some pl bad political economy there. We have a, a war on drugs that has been very expensive with very little to show for it other than putting a lot of people in jail. Um, yeah, nothing to and, show for it, I would think. And enriching um, uh, some police bureaucracies and, and some other um, 
as you say, uh, uh, profiteers, people who make money off this system that's not, I don't think, accomplishing anything. It wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, but there's also family structure issues that go beyond the African-American community that, that are that are correlated. I don't know what the reason is with, with, with low education. Uh, there are a lot of people growing up without two parents in the home. We we have a culture that says that's no big deal, at least a public culture. Whether that's true or not, I think is uh, the great experiment where we've embarked on uh, over the last uh, few decades that's tangled up with a lot of things we're talking about. But let's let's move to the let's move to the macroeconomics because it's an area that um, be nice to agree with you on. Uh, you've been very critical recently of what you call crude Keynesianism, in particular the evaluation of the stimulus spending of 2009, as well as uh, the significance of deficits and the size of the national debt. And you've taken a quite a bit of, of heat from uh, some people who share some of your ideology overall, but don't like this. Uh, so talk about what what you mean by crude Keynesianism, why you think it's wrong, and is there a Keynesianism you want to defend that's uh, not so crude? Well, since I start from the premise that we have deep structural long-term issues, my view of the role of, uh, of government and public investment and the budget is about providing public goods as I understand them and the things we've been talking about, whether it's infrastructure or skills or uh, R&D for renewable energy to combat climate change. I, I want the government there to do the things that the private sector doesn't do for all sorts of reasons and view public economics as our appropriate benchmark for that. Now, of course, we could have a debate about every one of those things. We've discussed some of them, uh, you know, and I take a generally a fairly expansive view of uh, what I think government can and should do to address some of these uh, deep structural issues. Where I uh, part company with the uh, uh, some, uh, say, government-friendly uh, uh, advocates is that since I take a long-term and structural view of these problems, I don't think that short-term aggregate demand management is really the point of most of uh, what we face. And the 2008 financial crisis was, uh, for me, a kind of epitome of this uh, parting of, uh, of of the paths with the uh, uh, with with a lot of people, um, because when the bubble burst, I said, "Well, my view is that the housing bubble itself was a symptom, not a cause." Of course, it was a cause of the immediate cycle, but as I it's approximate cause, it was approximate cause, but it was not a deep cause. I view uh, Alan Greenspan as an endogenous politician to a, a deeper uh, a deeper set of issues. And I viewed the, the easy money policy of the Fed as an easy, uh, unwise political response to soft labor markets in the early 2000s, soft for deeper reasons that we've been discussing. So pumping up the housing market, I viewed as just an endogenous policy uh, response, not, not a uh, cause in and of itself, not a prime mover of the crisis. But when uh, President Obama came in uh, and Larry Summers uh, became his uh, top advisor and Paul Krugman uh, and others were uh, rallying, they basically took the view in, in my interpretation, which they don't find very charitable, but I thought that they took the view, let's recreate the bubble. Uh, what do we know how to do? Well, we, we get people employed by construction. Uh, we get people employed by putting them back to work uh, on uh, uh, selling consumer products and so forth. I thought it was pretty unimaginative because it didn't ask the question, how did we get to 2008? They just said, well, that's a business cycle. And now that uh, unemployment is high, we have an aggregate demand problem and let's stimulate the economy and put people back to work. And I was rather shocked actually, because Obama came in, of course, with one of the great messes of modern times and the budget deficit, because of the cyclical reasons and the TARP, uh, was uh, already above a trillion dollars. And 
if I were uh, in that position at that point, I would say, my God, we, I inherited a, a more than a trillion dollar flow deficit. We got huge challenges ahead. Uh, it, we got to take some small steps to get this deficit down. Uh, we shouldn't do large things because we do need a bit of automatic stabilizer right now, but let's head in the direction of getting this deficit under control. But they did exactly the opposite. They doubled down on the deficit. Uh, we don't know the counterfactuals, but maybe raising it from 1.2 trillion to 1.6 trillion, say, uh, in uh, 2009. And keeping I at was it. shocked. And keeping at it for a few years. Well, and then every time uh, there was an option to uh, start moving it down until recently, uh, I know the White House uh, view, because I was uh, discussing it with them often, uh, is, uh, well, we, we need another year of stimulus. We need another year of stimulus, another temporary tax cut, another payroll tax cut, an extension of the Bush tax uh, cuts and so forth, none of which I agreed with because, you know, from my philosophy, I wanted more revenues to fund public goods and at the same time to reduce the deficit because I think that this buildup of debt just builds up lots of problems in the future. Let's let's talk oh, about no. those because, you know, I think... You, well, go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. You can finish. Sorry. Uh, and, and, uh, but the, the crude Keynesian part of it, uh, in addition to what I regard as a misinterpretation of this crisis, uh, just calling it an aggregate demand business cycle, basically, uh, is two other things, uh, at least. One is the feeling that macroeconomics is just turning a dial uh, and uh, – Fiscal policy has a multiplier on uh, spending on the spending side of 1.5 and on the tax side of one or whatever it is, and uh, that's good enough. And those are reliable multipliers, and we can count on them. Uh, and I just find that view uh, wholly unpersuasive, uh, both on, on a theoretical and on an empirical basis. So I didn't believe that those dials were were there to turn. The second aspect of of the crudeness of the Keynesianism was the constant dismissal of the harms of building up public debt. Okay. Uh, and, of course, that continues to this day. But this is part and parcel of Keynes's famous quip, which I don't think even he believed in. It was just too good to pass up, probably, okay. uh, the one that in the long run we're all dead. You know, in, in, in the not-so-distant future, we're going to have a massive amount of debt on our books that is going to have to be serviced, and that's going to create its own fiscal uh, challenges. And since I'm so interested in public investment and in uh, public programs to solve problems, I just see that that is crowding out things that are going to be important in the future. And, you know, for Paul Krugman to just blithely say, don't worry about it, as the public debt goes from 37% of GDP in 2007 uh, to uh, 75% of GDP today. And on his favorite trajectory, would continue to grow into the 80s and 90s percent of GDP. I said, come on, Paul, we got things we need to do with, with government revenues other than servicing debt in the future. His, and his that's response, where I, I view that as, as, as uh, quite, quite odd and quite, uh, quite wrongheaded. Well, I think his response would be, he'd say two things. One, or he said two things. Oh, look at Japan. They're, they're way over that and they're not, they're not dying. And number two, interest rates, are, you hear this all the time. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'll let you respond to it. Interest rates are so low. It's cheap. It's almost free. It's practically free. Why are you worrying about it? Well, uh, if we were financing a long-term project uh, at very low interest rates on a long-term debt, um, I think there's probably an argument there uh, for certain uh, kinds of uh, investment programs but if we're financing our general government budget deficit, taking pains, by the way, through public policy of the Fed to shorten the maturity of the public debt, and at the same time, uh, with every reason to believe that interest rates will rise back to normal levels in the future when the Fed's QE1, QE2, QE3, QEN <coughs> policies uh, finally stop, uh, I think it's just a matter of looking ahead a few years. And the CBO, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, does look ahead a decade uh, in its scenario, and it says interest rates are likely to rise by the end of this decade from near zero today to 
maybe four or five percentage points uh, on on uh, short-term debt and on average high enough to drive the debt servicing from the current level of about one and a half percent of GDP up to something like 3.3, 3.4% of GDP early in the 2020s. Now, going up to say 3 3.3, 3.4% of national income and debt servicing is not very attractive to me uh, because that would mean on the current CBO baseline that we would be spending more on simply servicing the public debt than we'd be spending on the entire sum of civilian discretionary programs for jobs, for education, for infrastructure, for environment, for climate change, for uh, science and technology. And I don't want to do that. And uh, since, uh, you know, we all have Excel, uh, we can make these calculations and say we don't have to do that. We should be more restrained on our borrowing so that we don't get into that trap 10 years from now. And I think Paul also, Krugman, has uh, really uh, done a a bit of a disservice by saying that the only test is whether we're going to have a financial market panic in the future. Right. I think that's a bizarro bizarro standard for whether it's a good idea or not, isn't it? Exactly. Because the the, the most basic point. It's all free. Yes. The most basic point of, of intertemporal public economics is that you have to service your debt in the future. You don't have a made-off scheme at hand. You don't have a Ponzi scheme at hand. You're going to have to service this stuff. And that's going to require revenues, and those revenues are going to be uh, politically uh, face political resistance. They're going to crowd out other things, and they're going to be distortionary. So just building up debt has a cost. Uh, it, uh, if you're doing an optimal control uh, to your budget, you have a a shadow price to building up that debt. uh, And if you do it in a more straightforward way, you have to pay for it. It's not free. Uh, And and a good uh, metric uh, is that you have to pay for it in present value. And uh, that means taking on a dollar of debt, you're going to have to raise a dollar of revenues or cut a dollar of spending or do some combination of the two in the future. And uh, you better think ahead uh, about that and not be so uh, blithe. Now, of course, there's another voodoo side of this, which is uh, the voodoo left that, in my view, is uh, uh, no less or more meritorious than the voodoo right, which said cut taxes, it pays for itself. Well, the voodoo left says spend more money, it pays for itself. Uh, And to my mind, these are both examples of profound, wishful thinking uh, that are naive counter to experience and invite abuse. And and so I don't like them on either side. Yeah, they're both perpetual motion machines to an extent that, that promise something that is so deliciously seductive, but doesn't seem to materialize. Uh, I just you want one last comment on the on the Keynesian part, and then I want to we're gonna have to close, so I want to get some other quick comments from you. You said that that you, the stimulus story, the the dials that you can't turn because they're not there, right? You know, I'm very sympathetic to that view, being a Hayekian. But you said also that you know the empirical evidence isn't there. I've come to believe that it's very hard to assess the merits of these of these claims on either side, either the skeptics like my own my own view or the people who claim that the, they know what the multiplier is. You know, the CBO can't really measure what the effect of the stimulus is. They they, they admit they can't construct the counterfactual. We certainly are in a different set of a different regime of of policy and financial sector stability. What, what's your view on, on our ability to even understand the connections between the the, the, the dials or or the non connections and the rest of the economy? Well, first, you know, we're, first we're 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 operating in a in a complex uh, system, so it's uh, not uh, hard to see why we can't uh, un- understand these things with with the precision that is uh, sometimes pretended. Second. Uh, many people are confused by the frequent CBO reports that says the stimulus has created X million jobs. Those are lies. But they, <laughs> they don't understand that what that is is simply running the CBO model. Yeah, I know. It's, it's unbelievable. It's not based on 
any outcomes at all. I at know. all. <laughs> I know. No, it's uh, at all. <laughs> it's maddening yeah, but, when smart but it, people. It gets uh, yeah. quoted so frequently and misunderstood. So I think it's, it's worth uh, bearing in mind. Third, I would <clears throat> turn to the theory. The theory says that temporary tax cuts and transfers shouldn't be expected to have much of an effect. And one of the things that I really disliked about the stimulus, and it's many things that I disliked about it, was that it was overwhelmingly temporary tax cuts and transfer payments, exactly the kind that even in theory, you wouldn't expect to have much of an effect because the theory says, you know, you should smooth that stuff. Uh, getting a tax, a payroll tax cut for a year or a, uh, some kind of income uh, tax cut for a year or two that's not going to do very much, and it shouldn't do very much for your spending decisions. And so I think on a theoretical basis, I was uh, you know, very skeptical. I thought the content of this stimulus was what you would expect to come out of a back room of a, uh, of, of a congressional committee, basically of Democratic Party side of a, of a congressional committee in six weeks, which is nothing very sensible for the long term. Um, so that was a, a third point of my skepticism. Fourth point is, of course, the forecast didn't work. Uh, and I think uh, as a Bayesian, I take that uh, as a sign that uh, something's probably wrong in some of the linkages of this uh, standard view. Agreed. And what didn't work is the idea that we would be back to low uh, unemployment, uh, small budget deficits, and uh, and rapid growth uh, already by uh, 2011, 2012. And so whatever, uh, whatever the others say, their forecasts didn't work. And they, of course, respond, well, many other done. things intervened. Yeah. And if we hadn't done this, of course, the, the stimulus worked exactly as we said it would. Uh, but uh, other things happened, and that's why we didn't get uh, the, the, the full effect. But I think that's a... a, a not not uh, a very persuasive uh, argument, actually. It's what Nassim Taleb calls the narrative fallacy, um, and he's right. Uh, I just want to apologize. I said that the CBO estimates about the job creations were lies. Uh, as I, uh, that that's not quite true. They're very honest about the fact that they just took their model and, and ran it again with the actual numbers of the stimulus amounts is the only difference. But they just took their forecast and reran right. it with the actual numbers and called that their what? estimate. The part What's that's surprising, the- though, is how no news outlet – oh, I shouldn't say – I mean, the mainstream news just reported that yeah. straightforwardly. That's the lie the part. <laughs> created so many jobs. That's shocking misunderstanding. Yeah, that's uh, the- and, uh, yeah. That, That's what I meant. When I said lies, it's, it's the pundits and, and news reports that took those as if they were some, something vaguely scientific. Um, but anyway, uh, to close, how – how has this very dramatic economic set of events we're talking about, which have probably grown in your appreciation and understanding of them, have probably changed over time and, and gotten richer. But for many of us, myself particularly, and I'd like to know if it's true for you, this these set of events forced us to think very differently about the way we think about economics. Has this changed for you? Are there lessons you've learned from the crisis that um, – that you think are that are central and that you think the profession has yet to learn? I don't think the profession's in very good shape. Uh, and I think, of course, our profession's hard. Uh, it's in some ways, actually, although people will object to this, it's, it's harder than natural sciences because that we're trying to take aim to understand not only a complex system, but a complex system that is changing over time. Whereas at least a cell biologist is basically looking at the same phenomenon year in, year out, decade in and decade out. And that cell is, uh, while it evolves very slowly, it doesn't evolve at the same rate as the complex global economy. So my feeling is we've got a very hard job to do um, and we don't do it well. Um, and I think that this uh, recent few years has uh, exposed these shortcomings more and more. It's led me to the view, which uh, I, I think I had, but uh, I feel more strongly that we really need to focus a lot more of our time and understanding on uh, 
change, understanding long-term structural change. This is what makes our field hard, actually. Um, if, if we were really in a stationary economy, uh, meaning that the probability distributions uh, were relatively unchanging over time, we'd figured this out. Uh, my view is that what makes this hard is not only the complexity, which makes uh, statistical identification hard and counterfactuals hard and so forth, but what makes this especially hard is that the uh, underpinning, the substrate of the economy is changing over time so that our equations are never right uh, because structure is, uh, is, is the deepest uh, part of uh, our change over a period of 10 or 20 or 30 years. And if we don't understand that in a more substantive way, the idea that business cycles are just simply overlaid on this and, and we have a kind of a stationary theory of business cycles is also wrong, it, at least since my interpretation is that we're, we're living in the mix of these two different uh, uh, temporal uh, experiences, the longer term and the short term overlaid and interacting with each other. And I find the, you know, I love the field. This is my uh, 41st year <laughs> in economics. Uh, so that's a lot. And uh, I've not regretted one day of uh, choosing this as my life's work. But I wouldn't say that we're at a healthy moment uh, as, as a profession right now, and we should take some lessons from this and figure out how to take a strong theoretical uh, set of ideas, which are very, very good, but don't define the world because they define too many worlds, too many possibilities, and link them more adequately to evidence. Uh, and a richer set of evidence and a, 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 a better way to do the empirical work. And I think that this uh, latest episode in broad public view uh, has really exposed a lot of the weaknesses of the profession as it is right now. My guest today has been Jeffrey Sachs. Jeff, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.